Because so much of our lives are about relationships. And we have to ask the question, why? Why is that? Well, you know why? It's because we serve a relational God. He set it up that way. See, God himself was in relationship even before we ever entered the scene. Before the first man and woman was ever created, God was in Trinitarian fellowship with himself. The Father loving the Son. The Son loving the Father. And the Father and Son loving the Spirit and vice versa. A relational God. And and that's why so much of our lives are wrapped up in relationships. So if you and I are going to live the Christian life as God intended, we must recognize the value of the local church. And I don't mean the church as in this right here, the walls we're putting up, you know, the ceiling. No, I'm talking about you and I, the people. That's the church. And we got to recognize the value and the role that we play in each other's lives. We need one another. Look at it like this. I'm sure we've all built a snowman before. I have my snowman up here. You start out the same way, right? You, you gather the snow on the lawn, and you, you, you bring it together, and you, you begin to pack it and form it, right? And, and you get a nice, tight, you know, ball, and then if it's the good kind of snow, you roll it in that snow, and it accumulates and gloms onto it, and you get the foundation for your snowman, and then you proceed to build him. But days later, even weeks later, after the temperature changes, maybe gets a little warmer, the snow around the snowman has all melted away. But what remains? Some remnant of your snowman is still there. Now, he might be a freaky decomposed snowman where, you know, the carrot nose has fallen to the ground. But to some degree, he's there, whereas all the other snow that was not brought together has melted away. See, it's like this. God has gathered us up together. He's brought us together as individual snowflakes, unique, each in our own right. And he brought us together to create something beautiful. Not a snowman, but the church, the body of Christ. See, and when we are united as one in that tight relationship with one another, the more we are protected from the various elements of the world, to some degree. And that's how God has intended it. Because the snowflakes that are not gathered together, they're just you know, kind of out there doing their own thing, they pass away. And so God's desire isn't for us to be like those snowflakes, you know, each concerned with you know, our own goals, our own desires, our own purposes, our own selves really, but rather that we would have something that the world knows very little about, and that's unity. And that's what this first portion of Ephesians 4 is really all about. It's about unity in the church. Jesus prayed for it, and now Paul's going to show us how it's done. He's going to give us the ingredients. So if you would, please stand. We're going to look at those first three verses in Ephesians 4. God's holy inspired word says this. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You may be seated. The first word we should consider there is the word therefore. 
You see it a lot in Paul's writings. And when you see the word therefore, you have to ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? And what he's doing is he's drawing our attention back to the first three chapters. And during those chapters, he's showing us just exactly who we are in Christ. This is us. And, and this is glorious theology. Let me give you the highlights of the first three chapters. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters. Grace has been lavished upon us. We're sealed with God's promised Holy Spirit. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive together with Christ. We've been saved by grace through faith, not of our own works. It's God's gift. Once far off, we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. He has broken down the wall of hostility, and he reconciled us through the cross. We're no longer strangers, no longer aliens. We are saints, fellow citizens, we are the church, and if you are in Christ here today, this is us. So the first three chapters, this is who you are. Chapter four, this is how you behave. And that's the word walk there in verse one. Not, not how we put one foot in front of the other. It's, it's more figurative than that. It's how we live our daily lives. It's our daily practice. It's not what you look like on a Sunday morning. It's what you look like all throughout the week, how you conduct yourself, your lifestyle. And there's something ironic about this whole thing. The position that we have in Christ, very high. We're, we're sons and daughters of the most high God. We're the king's kids, high position. And you know how you're supposed to walk that out? In a very lowly manner. That's the first ingredient Paul gives us. He says, the worthy walk, you walk it with all humility. I have a, a block here with an H on it, represents our humility. Okay, a little visual aid to help us here. I need that. Okay, the first ingredient of Paul lists, humility, it forms the, the, the foundation of the worthy walk. You know, and, I, and I'll say this, uh, humility, something I have a lot of. I am very humble. I, in fact, I, I might be the most humble person you've ever met. I mean, you know, years ago, I just decided I was going to kill all the pride in my life. And you know what? I did it. That's something I'm very proud of. <laughs> Kids are like, I don't think he knows what humility means. <laughs> Humility's funny like that. Once you think you got it, you ain't got it. Okay, it's gone. It's so elusive. So what is it? Humility is this perception of yourself. It's what do you think of you? How do you see yourself? Somebody who's humble, they don't, they don't speak like I just spoke, okay? I was joking, for those of you who didn't catch up. Uh, somebody who's humble, they don't view themselves in this exalted state. It's really a lowliness of mind. It's having an accurate view of who we are in truth. To be sure, we're created by God, special, no doubt about it, made in His image, with inherent dignity and value and, and purpose. You have worth and value. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise, okay? But apart from God, you know, humility says we are but dust. It's the opposite of pride. You know, and I, and I do think that this is a hard pill 
for us to swallow because human beings by nature, we're pretty much in love with ourselves. We are. We, we do. I remember the first time that it was revealed to me just how much pride I really had. It happened here at Living Water many years ago. Uh, I was, it was early on in my Christian walk, and there was a guy here. He's no longer part of, part of the church here, so it's none of you guys. Uh, he, he was trying to convince me that I had pride. And I was like, no, nah, I, don't, I don't think I do, which is pretty prideful to begin with. But he's like, you know what, Mike? You, you need to get low. You need to get low, and you need to see God high and lifted up. Like, like the prophet Isaiah had that vision in, in Isaiah chapter 5 when he saw the, the Lord high and lifted up, and all he could say was, woe is me, I am undone. And I responded by saying, yeah, uh, but that's not in Isaiah chapter 5, that's actually in Isaiah chapter 6, which as soon as I said that, he stopped. He said, see what you did right there? You had to correct me. You had to let me know that you knew that it was chapter 6. That's pride, Mike. And I was like, I don't think so, not really. I was just, you know, point of information, just trying to be accurate. But the more I thought about it, it started to bug me. Because if you think about it, really, I mean, whether that account is found in Isaiah chapter 5 or Isaiah chapter 6, isn't it true that I was really missing the point? I was. And this bugged me, and this guy is totally in my head at this point. And I came to this conclusion. Not that I was prideful, at least not yet. I came to this conclusion that he set me up. He knew it was Isaiah chapter 6. He intentionally said Isaiah chapter 5 so that when I corrected him, he could say, see, you got pride. It was a total setup. That's what I thought. And it began to eat at me. And because I'm bad, I decided I was going to do the same thing to someone else. I was going to create the same scenario to somebody who I think is pretty humble. I'll misquote where the verse is found, or the passage, and when they correct me, I will be vindicated. This is what I'm thinking, okay? This is a total Seinfeld episode, all right? I'm, I'm George Costanza all of a sudden, all right? So my unsuspecting victim was none other than our beloved Pastor Ben. When I saw Pastor Ben, next time I saw him, I said, hey, say, Pastor Ben, you remember that vision that Isaiah had, you know, in Isaiah chapter 5, when he saw the, the Lord high and lifted up? He's like, yeah? I'm like, yeah, Isaiah chapter 5, man. <laughs> He's like, uh-huh. I'm like, yep, good old chapter cinco. <laughs> And I stalled, and I waited, and eventually I had to say, dude, it's not found in chapter 5, it's in chapter 6. To which he responded, I know, I was just waiting to hear what great insight you had into that text. <laughs> I was like, no, that's not what this is all about. This isn't about Isaiah, this is about me. See, you were supposed to correct me, and when you did, then you would vindicate me as somebody who doesn't have pride. And you totally blew it. Thanks a lot. And I stormed off to go wallow in my pride. He was probably like, what in the world was that all about? And from that day on, I knew I had pride. See, pride is all about self. And humility is all about others. It's really an attitude. And it says this. It says, I don't need the closest parking space. 
Somebody else is more deserving of that. I, I, I'm able-bodied. I'll, I'll take the last spot. Somebody's got to park there. I'll, I'll park there and walk. Humility says, you know, we don't have enough chairs. Okay, somebody's more deserving to sit than I. I'll stand. Kids, kids, let me point a, a scenario out to you, okay? I'm going to paint this scenario. It's service time. We're downstairs. It's your favorite part of the service. It's snack time, right? It's true. You love snack time, right? Except we have a problem. There's not enough cheese balls to go around. See, Pastor Mike, once again, has dipped into our cheese ball supply, <laughs> depleted the inventory. See, what happens is during the week, right around lunchtime, he disappears from his office. He's gone for a few minutes, comes back with these orange-stained fingertips. We all know what's going on. And he said guilty as charged. But let's say we, we don't have enough cheese balls to go around. Here's my question for you. How would that go? How would that go? Last night, there was a, a little girl who said, mine. I said, I said what, what do you mean mine? She goes, oh, I'm getting mine. I mean, and the determination in her eyes was like, I'm twice her size. I'm not getting between her and cheese balls, I'll tell you. And I looked around at kids, and they're like, yep, that's right. They're eyeing other kids like, I could take this kid. I'm getting his cheese balls. And, you know, my note said that there would be weeping and wailing and tears shed. The reality is, I think there might be bloodshed in that room. You know, this could be a violent day at Living Water. The word carnage comes to mind. Parents would come to pick up, you know, kids like, you know, all bandaged up and everything, limping out. Be like, yeah, we ran out of cheese balls. <laughs> Every boy and girl for themselves. The reality is, guys, we all have work to do in this area. None of us can say we have arrived. Nobody. So is there anybody out there who, who might be able to show us the way? Is there anybody who, who could provide for us an example, a model of humility? Should we, should we look to celebrities? No. Famous athletes? No. There is someone. His name is Jesus. Look with me at Philippians chapter 2. This is just one of the great sections in the, all of the New Testament. Again, the Apostle Paul, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among ourselves, or yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, we celebrated last week, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus is our example. He's the bar. He's the standard. Right? And the key to this is to look to him, study him. That means we open our Bibles. We must read about him. Look at his walk. How did he conduct himself? himself? And then we walk accordingly. That's really the key here, is to look to Jesus and not, you know, 
muster up the strength in and of ourselves because if we're in Christ, we have the third member of the, the Holy Trinity dwelling within us that empowers us and actually animates us to actually begin to accomplish this. Again, no one gets there in this life, but we can then begin to walk in humility when we look at Christ. So the second characteristic of the worthy walk, Paul uh, lists there, is gentleness. So I have a G for gentleness. Okay, there's our little, our blocks there. Now, some of your Bibles may, may say meekness. Gentleness, meekness, very similar. And when I say meekness, you might think weakness. It's kind of a, a shame that those words rhyme because they really don't have anything to do with one another. Meekness is anything but weakness. Uh, a guy named KB once said, if you think meek is weak, try being meek for a week. Very hard, very hard, because to be meek actually means that you have great power. See how it can't be weakness? In order to be meek, you got to have power, which is the opposite of weakness, right? So you got to have great power, but that great power is under great control. Like a horse. A horse has tremendous power, but a horse can be gentle and meek when it willfully submits itself to another, to the one guiding it. Its power is harnessed and under control. That's meekness. See, meek is not weak. Meek can get savage. It can, but it gets savage at the right time for the right reason. Let me quote somebody here that I've never quoted before, and it's going to make me sound really smart, okay? I'm going to quote the ancient thinker Aristotle, all right? I don't read a lot of Aristotle, but boy, did he nail this one. I'll try to kidify it as best as I can. I think you'll get this. He wrote about virtues like gentleness, like meekness. And he said, what we want to do is we want to be in the middle of two extremes, okay? Between too little and too much. And he used two examples. The first one was courage. He said, if, if you don't have any courage, you're lacking in courage, you're just a coward, okay? But if you got too much courage over here, you know, you're foolish. In other words, you're going to get yourself killed over here, okay? And if you're way over here, you're just a big old scaredy cat. So where is, where is courage found? It's found in the middle. He said the same thing true of, of gentleness. He said for meekness, it's found in the middle between indifference. You just don't care. You're just like, meh. You're just, you're like milk toast. You're just, eh. You, you don't have... You don't, you, don't, you don't get riled up about anything, okay? You're indifferent. What's the opposite? You got explosive anger over here. You, you care a little too much. The virtue is in the middle. That's where it's found. He said, and I quote, A meek or gentle person is angry on the right occasion with the right people at the right time for the right length of time. End quote. That's having power under control. Once again, our example of meekness, where do we go? You guessed it, Jesus Christ. The one who said, learn of me. I am meek. I am gentle, lowly in heart. The Holy One of God who never broke a single law, yet they condemned him to die as a common criminal. Remember when he was being arrested? We find this in Matthew 26. When Jesus was being arrested, Peter draws his sword and he slices off the ear of some dude. 
right? And Jesus speaks up at this time. The, the same Jesus who just five chapters earlier fashioned a whip and stormed the temple flipping tables said this, Peter, put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? What's he saying? I got crazy power. That is a tremendous amount of power. But it takes even more equal amount of control to control that kind of power. So let me ask you, how do you respond when someone unjustly attacks you? Let's just say it's, let's say it's undeserved criticism, okay? They don't have a basis for it. They're just way out in left field, and, and they come at you, all right? Do you unsheath your sword seeking to slice off their ear or perhaps even more, take off their entire head, you know? You know, maybe you bang out a nasty email just pounding the keyboard. First of all, buddy, let me set you straight. Okay, there are 20 reasons your criticism of me is unfair. I will list them in bullet point fashion, bullet point number one, and just, just let her rip. Or do you respond like this? In person, better, I guess, than an email. I want to thank you for your concern. Thank you for your criticism. I know God will use it in my life. You know, he, he's going to conform me to the image of his son. And, and that's my goal. I'm seeking to look like Jesus. But I fall so short so often. So thank you again. Please continue to pray for me. I will pray for you. God bless you. And sign your name. Could you do that? That takes a lot of power to do that. Next, Paul gives two more. He says, with patience... Bearing with one another in love. So yes, I have a P and an L to add to this right here. Patience and love. Paul has a very specific view of patience here. This is not like, you know, uh, being patient at a red light, that type of stuff. This is what I would call relational patience. Why do I say that? Because he says to bear with one another in love. Another translation is to literally put up with each other. And I love the Bible's honesty. That, that's honesty. we got to put up with one another. This is what's known as true tolerance, true biblical tolerance. And why does he tell us we have to put up with each other? Well, the answer is because people can be annoying. They can. I mean, have you ever been annoyed by someone? You know why? Because people can be annoying, right? I can be very annoying. I'm glad I didn't get an amen on that. Thank you. <laughs> But we need this here. Guys, we need this at Living Water Community Church. We need loving patience. Not because this place is filled with annoying people, but I would say it's because of our diversity. Isn't it easier to get along with someone who, who says what you would say, does what you would do, thinks the way you think? You'd be like, I kind of like this person. They're a lot like me. I love myself. They're like me. I like them right? We ought to be friends, right? But it's when people say and do things that we would never say or do, that's when they become annoying. And that's what's going to happen. It's going to happen. And we have to practice patience at that point, putting up with one another in 
love. See, living water is not only ethnically diverse and culturally diverse and, and economically diverse and socially diverse, but we're even theologically diverse. Let me say something that may surprise you, but it shouldn't. Those of us who stand up here and, and, and share God's word from this pulpit here, those of us who do that, we don't always agree 100% of the time on all doctrine. Gasp. I heard a gasp. <gasps> did he just say that? I did. Now, don't get it twisted. It's not like one of us is a Mormon or anything like that, okay? <laughs> These are the finer points of theology. The reality is if you get all of us into a room and you ask enough questions and you ask the right questions, there will come a time where one of us will say to another, you know, hey, I just don't see it that way. And you know what? That's okay. It is. See, we recognize this truth. We do. But by God's grace, we have enough maturity to not let it affect our relationship with one another. You know how much those differences affect the love I have for those guys? Not a bit. You know how much they, they affect how we do ministry? They don't. They don't. And you know why they don't affect our relationship? We are too busy trying to figure out how we can better serve God and serve people. We're trying to figure out how can we, how can we minister to that, that, that family. The, the marriage is hanging by a thread. What can we do? How can we counsel them? The, help that family whose kids are spiraling out of control. Who's in the hospital that could use a visit? Who's going to shovel the driveway of the widow down the street? Who can we pray for? Who can we counsel? Who needs a phone call? How can we reach our community with the gospel? This is us. This is our focus. That's why those things don't get in the way. Honestly, I don't even have enough time to figure out whether Pastor Mike is pre-mill, post-mill, all-mill, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. I don't even know. I don't. Because those are the types of conversations that may happen at like a staff outing. We're in the middle of the afternoon, he says, hey, let's all pile in the van, let's go over to 3B's, I'll treat you to milkshakes, right? And how ridiculous would it be for me to have any sort of animosity towards him because we don't share the same end times view, for example, you know? Like, hey, thanks, Pastor Mike, for the milkshake, but how could you possibly hold to a pre-trib rapture? I mean, come on, man, really? And then throw the milkshake at him, Right? <laughs> I'd be fired on the spot, for one. But something worse than that would happen. Unity would be lost. Strife would, would set in. There would be division, people lining up, taking sides. That's not unity. That whole thing would be absurd. Now, if you are new here, let me tell you this. Theology is very important. We love theology. This is not a downplaying of theology. Anybody who knows me, I will talk theology with you till the cows come home. I love it. I can't get enough of it. Okay, we can have those conversations. And, and even as, as congregation members, we need to have these types of conversations. We're not afraid of that. But when we do, we need to come to that person gently, with great humility and patience and love. You know, there are certain doctrines that I hold with an open hand. Like, I got my view. I've come to a place where this is what I believe. You disagree. Okay, come, come with your view. Let's talk. You know, if you want to buy me lunch, that would help, you know. 
but, but let's come, let's sit down, let's open our Bibles, and let's talk like we actually like one another. See, we need to bear with one another's differences and not let them come between us and destroy the love we have for one another, the unity that we have in Christ and the mission that He has us on. Yes, we diligently study God's Word. We seek to come to those correct interpretations. But the reality of the situation is this. There are, in certain doctrines, points of distinction, but need not be points of division. And we have to be mature enough to know the difference. As one preacher put it, he said, I'll die for the deity of Christ. I won't suffer a paper cut for speaking in tongues. Sometimes we miss this truth. And what happens? The unity that God desires for us suffers because of it. And that's really what this passage, these, these first three verses are all about. It's about unity in the church. So on top here, of course, we have a U for unity. Okay? This is what God desires for us. But there's something wrong with what I just built here. I don't know if you caught it. It's in the text, verse 3. We are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. See, we don't create unity. We don't. You know why? Because it already exists. It's already there. Paul's going to go on to say there is one body, one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. We don't create unity. All we can do is destroy it. And all it takes is to get a bunch of people running around, lacking humility, only concerned with self, no concern for others, no gentleness, no patience, no love, and you remove something as foundational as humility, and the whole thing crumbles. And unity is lost. And we no longer look like the church as God intended. You know what we look like? We look like the world. We look like the rest of the world. And it breaks my heart. It does. And I hate when, I'm, when I contribute. I hate when I'm part of that. I really do. So what's the key? How do we do this? I already told you. We look to Jesus. Look at the one who did it. Okay, he understands, and he actually lived it out. But we gotta be, we gotta learn about him. We gotta study him. We gotta know him, and we gotta live according to the power of the Holy Spirit that should be inside of us. If we are in Christ, He's there, and He gives you the power to carry this out. Before I pray, which I will in a minute, let me give you two very quick practical applications. Something that you can do. First one's for adults. I already mentioned this earlier. Get connected weekend, okay? Get yourself into a small group. I beg you. I do. There is such value in the small group. I've always said that this is where the real work of Christianity takes place. This is wonderful that we're gathered together. This is, this is lovely. It's great. But you can't really practice this stuff in this type of context. Get together in a small group and enter into one another's lives, and, and carry one another's burdens. Pray for one another. Learn the scriptures together. 
you know, and have an iron sharpening iron and doing life together, that's where you can put this stuff into practice. And it happens in the small group. I beg you, join one. Second application, this is for adults and kids, okay? This is for everybody in the room, and that is to serve in a ministry. Serve in a ministry. You are never too young to serve somebody here at the church. You can't say, I'm just a kid. You can't. You know why? I think of my man Justin back here playing the drums. Dude is a beast on the drums. He's going to be 14 next week, okay? And he has been blessing us with his gift for I don't know how long. So faithful. So faithful. I so appreciate him. You don't want me back there banging on them drums. You want Justin back, okay? And he's, and he's a young dude. I think of his little sister Candace helping out dad in the preschool room. It's great. I think of the, the Engbrecht girls, Krista and Rachel. They come to the 9 a.m. service. They're with their peers. They get built up and trained up there. And then you know what they do? They stick around for the 11 a.m. service and they help mom. And, and they share what they're learning with the younger kids. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Let me encourage you in that. So there's my applications. This is where we can practice these things, these, these things of being humble, being gentle, being patient, be loving, all for a, a goal of unity within the church that brings glory to God and is pleasing to Him and is joyful to us. Let's pray to that end. Most gracious God, you are gracious. Oh, you put up with me. The patience that you have shown me in my lost days, it's unimaginable. I just think on those things, Lord, and I, I say, how, how could it be that you would call me your own and that you have done that in the lives of people in this room? You've taken us from darkness into light. And you've put us into a family. We, we are a family here. And just like our earthly family, there's, there's squabbles and there's disagreements and people don't see eye to eye. But we must work through those things. And thank you for your word that tells us how to do it with humility and patience and gentleness and kindness and, and grace and love. Lord, help us to work those out, to practice those so that this place here would be a testimony to the world. What did you say, Lord Jesus, that, that they will know that, that, that we are yours, not by our, our theological acumen or, or our uh, building. Uh, Lord, it's by our love for one another. And we could use some of that. We could use a whole lot of that. I pray that you'd work that into our hearts, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would, we would carry this out for your glory, for your honor, and for your fame. But we ask all this in Jesus' good name. Amen.